it's all based though on this same myth that there is a free market for babies and it's a win-win situation. So people who have babies that they didn't want to have can just give up their babies now supplying enough infants for those who want to adopt. So it's not that people are going to voluntarily give up their children. In fact, we know from the takeaway study that most people who are forced to give birth, who wanted to get an abortion, keep their babies. What's more likely to happen is that they will be forced to give up their children or their children will be taken from them because of the increased uh, economic hardship they'll face because they were forced to give birth to a baby they weren't economically prepared to take care of. Dorothy, with yes. your reference to a free market for babies, you fully brought this episode around to the main topic of taboo trades that we are, that is our core theme. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm glad that uh, on your last episode, we could tie it together. Tie the whole thing together. <laughs> tie the whole thing together. Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome to the Taboo Trades Podcast, a show about stuff we aren't supposed to sell, but do anyway. I'm your host, Kim Kravick. My guest today is Dorothy Roberts, the George A. Weiss University Professor of Law and Sociology, and the Raymond Pace and Sadie Tanner Mossel Alexander, Professor of Civil Rights at the University of Pennsylvania School of Law. Professor Roberts' work focuses on urgent social justice issues in policing, family regulation, science, medicine, and bioethics. Her major books include Torn Apart, How the Child Welfare System Destroys Black Families, and How Abolition Can Build a Safer World, published by Basic Books in 2022. Fatal Invention, How Science, Politics, and Big Business Recreate Race in the 21st Century, published by New Press in 2011. Shattered Bonds, The Color of Child Welfare, published by Basic Books in 2002. And Killing the Black Body, Race, Reproduction, and the Meaning of Liberty, published by Pantheon in 1997. She is also the author of more than 100 scholarly articles and book chapters, as well as a co-editor of six books on topics such as constitutional law and women in the law. Her work has been supported by the American Council of Learned Societies, National Science Foundation, Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, Harvard Program on Ethics and the Professions, and Stanford Center for the Comparative Studies in Race and Ethnicity. Recent recognitions of her scholarship and public service include 2019 Rutgers University Honorary Doctor of Laws degree, 2017 Election to the National Academy of Medicine, 2016 Society of Family Planning Lifetime Achievement Award, 2016 Tanner Lectures on Human Values, and the 2015 American Psychiatric Association Solomon Carter Fuller Award. So why don't you guys introduce yourselves to our audience? Hi, I'm Julia DiRosario. I'm a 3L. 
And hi, I'm Gary Sedell. I'm also a 3L. So um, as you know, we have Dorothy Roberts with us today, and both of you volunteered to be the co-host for this particular episode. Can you talk a little bit about why you wanted to be the host for this particular topic or author? So I'm really excited to talk to Dorothy, particularly about her article on the child welfare system. I actually worked with children in out-of-home care before law school, so the subject is really close to my heart. I was working outside of the U.S. in a more homogenous society, so I didn't witness the same racial harms as the U.S. system faces. So for that reason, I'd be really interested to hear more about the racial harms of the child welfare system in the U.S. And what about you, Darius? Yeah, um, so I did a little bit of uh, movement work focusing on racial disparity before law school, um, but I never had the opportunity to learn, you know, about the welfare system or race-based medicine. So I thought this would be an excellent way to educate myself. So I guess the next question I have is what are you guys hoping to learn from Dorothy today? What sorts of, um, is there anything specific you want to ask her or hope to learn from her about her work on this topic? So as well as the racial harms of the systems, which I just mentioned, I'm really interested in learning about practical strategies for reforming both the medical and the child welfare systems. Since the problems with these systems stem from really deep-rooted societal issues, reform or abolition is likely to be a really big undertaking. Um, so I'd love to hear more from Dorothy about how we can go about achieving this. Yeah. And um, for me, I just want to learn a little bit more about what um, abolition means to Dorothy. Um, I know it can take a lot of different forms for a lot of different people. So I just want to get her take on it. Okay. Let's join the others then. Hello. Hi. Thanks so much for doing this. It's so good to see you. It's been sure. a while. Good to see you too. It's been a long, 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 long time. Yes, it has. <laughs> I told the students about how when we first met, um, you were already really fancy and I was a nobody and you were really nice to me. <laughs> so I still have remembered it ever since. <laughs> You're of course still really fancy and I'm still comparatively a nobody, but I still oh, none of that is true. I think that we're starting off with um, Julia. Hi, Dorothy. Thank you so much for joining us. We are so incredibly excited to have you. Um, to start off, we have a lot of questions for you about your call to ab abolish the child welfare system, which mm -hmm. you wrote about in your article, Why Abolition? For our listeners who may not have read your article yet, would you like to give a brief summary or elevator pitch for your proposal? Sure. So I think most people in America who haven't been involved with the child welfare system believe the propaganda that it has, including its very name, uh, that it protects children and improves their welfare. But I've been doing research for a long time on this topic, over two decades, including a lot of service work and advocacy work. So I have been involved in a lot of reform efforts as well. And I have reached the conclusion, which I document in that article, but also in my recent book, Torn Apart, that this system is really a family policing system. And by that, I mean, it's not designed to protect children and improve their welfare. It's designed to accuse family caregivers, to investigate them, regulate the families very intensively, 
often separate children from their families and even destroy their families. And it targets the most marginalized families in America, almost exclusively impoverished and low-income families, but also very disproportionately Black and Indigenous or Native families. And from its very beginnings, the family policing system has either ignored Black children or targeted them for control and criminalization. So Black children are at very high risk of being torn from their families and placed in the foster system, which is well-documented to drive many of them to juvenile detention and prison. So if we really want to protect children and improve their welfare and support their families, we would have to replace this system because its very design is to oppress families and is steeped in foundational racism. And so we need to replace it with a radical new vision that actually meets children's needs and moves away from surveillance and punishment and coercion toward a reimagined meaning of safety that centers the needs of children and their families and figures out how to meet their needs. Uh, so, And also, as our nation is grappling with police violence and mass incarceration, we should include family policing along with other carceral systems that should be part of the attention of growing abolitionist movements. And so we can begin this vision of abolition, which means both dismantling, but at the same time, replacing it with ways of actually meeting children's needs and supporting families, like diverting the billions of taxpayer dollars that are spent on investigating and separating families and maintaining children away from their families toward providing concrete resources directly to family caregivers, building voluntary community-based supports for families, and also working on transformative justice practices that can address violence in families, even though most of the children that are taken from their families are taken on grounds of neglect related to poverty. But we can also reimagine better ways of addressing violence in families. So uh, my argument then is why continue a system well-documented to harm children to be based on racist and settler colonial ideologies uh, and to have a clearly uh, racist impact on families and instead work toward a vision of child welfare that actually meets children and families' needs. Dorothy, can I just ask you a follow-up? You mentioned um, sure. the huge cost of the system. Do you have a rough estimate of what um, sort of in the aggregate we spend on this? I, I mean, it's a much larger number than I would have imagined, quite frankly. Yeah, so it's it's uh, somewhere between 30 and $40 billion of federal, state, and local spending on uh, a formal child welfare services, most of which is maintaining children outside their home. 
uh, the 10 times as much money goes to foster care. And some of it also goes to adoptive adoption services, but far less goes to services to intact families you know, with children remaining in their homes. And so uh, that money would be better spent directly in the hands of families. And uh, also there should be even more money spent. I mean, on the one hand, you know, $35 billion is a lot of money to keep children away from their families, but to really address the needs of children in America, we should spend even more. But one of my arguments is that by pretending that the child welfare system is meeting the needs of children, that it's what the government does to protect children and keep them safe, we divert attention from the needs of even more children uh, who, uh, because of the way our society is structured, are living in poverty and aren't aren't at all addressed by the system. So it's not, you know, it's not just replacing the system by defunding it and putting that money into the hands of families. It requires a broader and even more radical change in how we think about uh, public support for families. If we had uh, better schools, if we had adequate housing, food, um, and all the things that people need, daycare, uh, other kinds of childcare, the, the kinds of things that families need, uh, we, we could use that to replace the punitive system we have now that's doing a terrible job of keeping children safe. Great. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for that explanation. Um, we have a lot of further questions on abolition from the class and on sure. societal attitudes towards abolition. Mm -hmm. And our first question is from Darius. Hi, Dorothy. Very nice to meet you. Thank um, you. So, um, abolitionists of any type encounter the same challenge of having to justify what others perceive as an extreme solution to the problem. Mm -hmm. um, many people prefer that kind of incremental experimentation and change, um, fearing mm -hmm. that too drastic a shift will make the uh, current system worse, not better. Mm -hmm. um, do you think their fear is misplaced? If so, how can we go about changing their minds? Well, I think that many people have a misconception of what abolition means. So I think that it does mean incremental change. Uh, obviously, we're not going to be able to tear down this multi-billion dollar industry that many people are invested in financially and ideologically in any short period of time. Uh, so abolition doesn't mean, and it couldn't possibly mean, ending any of these oppressive systems quickly. Uh, it And also, it, it would have to include building the replacement at the same time. Uh, and this is another misconception about abolition, that somehow it means ending protections for children in this case, or ways that we uh, are trying to keep people safe in our society, you know, whether we're talking about prisons, police, other kinds of surveillance of uh, by the state. But let's focus on family policing. Um, uh, 
that it means ending it and just leaving children abandoned with unmet needs. No, not at all. It's the it's the opposite of that. Uh, I and other abolitionists, all the ones I know who want to end this system, want to end it to do a better job of meeting children's needs and supporting families, do a better job of keeping children safe. And so it's not about tearing down what we have now and leaving children to to suffer with unmet needs or from uh, abuse in the home. It's simultaneously with reducing the power that the system has now to harm families to create, build, imagine, probably in the opposite order, imagine, (laughs) build and create the ways of actually meeting children's needs, actually providing concrete supports for families. Uh, So the so the the fear, I think, is largely based on a misconception of what abolition means. Uh, uh, so that's you know that that I think uh, clarifying what abolition means might might reduce the the fears that people have that it's going to leave children unprotected, and then not only that. The vision of abolitionists is to care for even more children because the system now, even though it's taking away far too many children, it takes away hundreds of thousands of children every year from their families, and half of Black children in America will be subjected to a child welfare investigation before they reach age 18. So it, it is intensively involved in surveillance and destruction of families, but it still only addresses a fraction of children in America living in poverty. So the vision of abolitionists is to, instead of relying on this system that harms children and doesn't address the needs of the vast majority of children in America, to we would replace it with an approach that would provide what children need. I think um, next up we have a new. Yeah, hi Dorothy, thanks so much for being here. Um, sure. I actually have two questions, but I'll start with my first. So okay. in Why Abolition, you refer to the child welfare system as the family policing system. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just wanted to know what are some of the similarities between this system and the policing or criminal justice system, and if you run into any skepticism or criticism from people involved in the system or even uninvolved in the system for using this kind of language. Yeah, so there are multiple ways in which the child welfare system mirrors the criminal legal system and uh, police law enforcement and also is entangled with it. So it mirrors it, and this is why I call it a policing system, in the way it accuses and detains, uh, separates 
family members, puts them into involuntary confinement, uh, monitors them. Uh, and I'm talking about both parents and children. Uh, so it's an accusatory system. It is, it's a coercive system, just like the criminal legal system. It's a punishment system. It's a system that punishes impoverished families for failing to meet the needs of their children. That's the main thing that this system does. And it punishes them by taking children away from their families and putting them in substitute care. Or even if it's just the investigation, the investigation alone is traumatizing and, and, and is a form of punishment along with the long lasting harms as a result, both of being accused of being a child maltreater, uh, you have your name is put into a registry that means you cannot have a job that deals with children. And that's childcare workers, bus drivers, nurses, doctors. You know, there, there are cons harms, uh, economic harms to parents. Uh, you know, in addition to the psychological trauma of having your child taken from you and put often in the custody of strangers. And then for children, uh, it's a system that criminalizes children in multiple ways. So it increases their risk that they're going to be involved in the juvenile legal system. Uh, and, and it is structured to put children in juvenile detention because it puts children in conflict uh, with foster caretakers and other children in foster care, especially if you're put in congregate care. And then the response of staff or foster caretakers is much more likely to be to call the police than children experience in their own homes. So many children end up leaving foster care to go into juvenile detention. Now, once you're at the attention of the juvenile legal system as a child in foster care, you are more likely by being in foster care to get a harsher sentence, to be uh, left longer in the juvenile legal system. Uh, your you know, children who are in foster care who get in trouble with the law are perceived to be more delinquent than children who aren't in foster care. They're perceived to need more supervision, more coercive supervision. And uh, there, there are lots of ways, but I'll just end with one more way that it criminalizes children is many children are placed in what are called residential treatment facilities which are supposed to be for children who have mental health or behavioral problems. But in some states, because of the lack of sufficient homes to place them in, especially Black teenagers, queer teenagers, uh, they are put in these facilities, even though there's no medical need to put them there. And many of them are like prisons. Uh, children report that they feel like they, they're caged uh, they and children have been killed by staff in these places. So uh, children are criminalized uh, by foster care. Uh, and 
and then there's also just the carceral logic of it that the you know the logic of police and prisons is the same as the logic of the foster industrial complex, which is the way that we meet human needs is to punish the people with those needs. Uh, the policies that ended the federal entitlement to welfare and that increased uh, the building of prisons and the funding of police departments were were promoted and passed at the at the same time as a package with legislation to move children from foster care into adoptive homes and to terminate let's be clear that means terminating the rights of parents whose children are in foster care so and i you know i could go on and on about the history the history of the explosion of foster care, especially the disproportionate involvement of black children in foster care is is absolutely entangled with the effort to keep black people off of welfare and um, the same stereotypes, but the policies were very much entangled. So uh, we, we have to see criminal law enforcement and family policing as intimately related in terms of their logics and policies. And I'll just mention one other thing, which is the way in which caseworkers and police officers work hand in hand. Caseworkers will often call police officers for backup when they go to investigate a home. And so you have police moving into homes without a warrant because caseworkers rarely get a warrant, even though they should under the Fourth Amendment. And so it expands the power of police to enter people's homes without judicial authorization. And at the same time, it gives caseworkers more power because they have an armed officer coming into a home, demanding entry into a home and investigating a home, adding to the terror of the experience. Uh, And then they call police officers again when they want to remove children from their homes, adding to the terror of having government agents coming to your home and snatching your children away from you. Dorothy, it, it's interesting you mentioned that. I actually um, started reading uh, the autobiography of Malcolm X a while yes. ago. And yeah, the beginning of the, the book is just talking about the intimidation of the uh, the police officers and the welfare state and how they yes. go hand in hand. Absolutely. I, yeah, I, I, I totally I love, agree. Yeah, his he is so perceptive as he always is in everything he, he wrote, right? Where he says it is a form of legal slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how he saw it. And in fact, we can trace the origins of separating black families to the slavery system where white enslavers had absolute authority over black children and did separate them at will, whether uh, it was to pay off a debt, to make more money just because they felt like it, to pay as a gift, you know, for whatever reason, or on the auction block where different family members could be auctioned off to different enslavers uh, for sale. And so, uh, yes, uh, Malcolm X was very astute in his his uh, analysis of the the destruction of his own family uh, when his mother had trouble 
uh, taking care of the family after his father was killed. And instead of providing for the family, the what he calls the welfare people, uh, intimidated the family and eventually got a judge to break up the family, place the children uh, separately into different foster homes. You also asked about what people think about that analogy. Um, well, it goes it goes back to, <laughs> excuse me, the false perception that most people have, no fault of their own. They just haven't encountered the system and they've only heard uh, good things about it. They assume a child welfare system would be protecting children. So they it, it's you know it creates a kind of cognitive dissonance to hear that uh, caseworkers act like police officers because they think caseworkers are kind people who help families take care of their children. That's what you know social workers are supposed to do. So when they hear that, actually they often come to homes with police officers and act in very coercive, degrading ways toward families. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't make sense to them. But there are so many examples. I mean, this is something I do in my book, Torn Apart. I have give lots of examples of families that have been uh, intimidated by caseworkers uh, who routinely violate the constitutional rights of families and uh, and work with police officers. There are many uh, agencies in America now that have entered into agreements with police departments. Uh, they train together. Uh, they they work together in multiple ways. They surveil families together. But, you know, it's not a coincidence. It's because the system is designed to target those neighborhoods, just like criminal law enforcement is designed to target those neighborhoods. Thank you so much for that, Dorothy. Um, I think up next we have um, a question from Mary Beth about um, the pro-adoption community. Mm -hmm. Hi, Dorothy. Thank you Hi. so much for joining us today. Sure. Um, so I think it's fair to say that the adoption industry is not centered around, you know, what's best for the child, but it is centered around giving or like allowing, I guess, families um, to get a child. So yeah. I wanted to hear, I guess, your opinion on what needs to happen within the adoption agents industry. Does it need to be abolished? What needs to occur to abolish um, the child welfare industry and kind yeah. of hear maybe more about how those two go hand in hand. Yeah, they do go hand in hand. I haven't studied adoption uh, in depth the way I have uh, family policing, including investigations, supervision, family separation and foster care. But I have done research on and written extensively about the connections between the two. Um, and uh, one major connection, of course, is that you cannot adopt a child unless their birth parents' rights are terminated. And so adoption from foster care means terminating the rights of parents. And I think the adoption industry has sent 
a message that's parallel to the message of the child welfare system. So the message of the child welfare system is we're going in and saving children. And then the message of the adoption industry is we are now taking those children that were saved and putting them in better homes. And so it's it's all about saving children. And of course, there's a lot of white saviorism in both of these um, realms, uh, which which go along with the uh, ideology and the stereotypes about dysfunctional and harmful black families. Because there's, you know, I, I mentioned briefly my elevator speech, and of, and of course this has come throughout my comments that uh, this is very much rooted in racism, and this the the idea of saving children has un- underneath it the idea that there are families that aren't good for children and they should be placed with families that are assumed to be better for children. And uh, who, what is a good family and what's a bad family is heavily racialized. So, you know, Black families have been subject from the time of slavery to the stereotype that uh, we are neglectful, uh, we're dysfunctional. Uh, we don't know how to care for children. Black children are better off under anyone's care uh, rather than Black parents and families, and some even say uh, communities. You know, it, uh, so um, and the best people to care for children are white people. So uh, I, I mentioned the federal law that incentivizes terminating parental rights and placing children up for adoption. And that law, the Adoption Safe Families Act, it passed in 1997, a year after the law abolishing the federal entitlement to welfare was passed. That law was promoted explicitly by many of its advocates as a law designed to terminate the rights of Black mothers who uh, whose fault it was that black children were languishing in foster care. You know, at that time black children were the largest group in foster care. It was the uh the the top of a explosion of foster care that began in the 1960s and uh, mostly because of the massive influx of black children into foster care. And so there was a recognition of this problem that there were all these black children in foster care. And the solution that Congress came to when Bill Clinton signed this law was, and Hillary Clinton promoted it, was that black mothers' rights should be terminated to free, and this is the language, to free these children from their parents so they could be adopted. And some people even advocated explicitly they would be better off adopted by white people. So there, you know, the federal law that governs uh, foster care in America is a law that was promoted uh, in a way that, that, um, that, completely connected foster care and adoption and uh, was based on these racist stereotypes about Black families. Uh, so, uh, so yes, <laughs> adoption and foster care 
are are very much entangled. Uh, I'll I'll mention another way they're entangled is, and I mean, this may be a little bit off topic, but I think it's important to connect all these dots uh, by the Dobbs decision that uh, overturned Roe v. Wade and allows for states to ban abortion. In the oral argument, Justice Amy Coney Barrett asked the attorney for abortion clinics, you know, why do we need Roe v. Wade when people who uh, have babies can just turn them over to uh, to safe havens for adoption. Uh, so the solution to banning abortion is just to, and, and the harm to the <laughs> pregnant person is just to let them turn over their baby. Well, so why, do, why do we need protection for abortion? Why do we need a right to abortion? Well, then uh, Justice Alito mentions this argument in the opinion. And Anne has the nerve to drop a footnote that refers to the um, uh, supply of adoptable infants uh, and as if banning abortion is going to be a solution for uh, the dearth of infants for people to adopt. So we there's this connection between banning abortion and adoption. That's explicitly in the Dobbs opinion. And of course, there were people outside uh, the oral argument with signs saying, I will adopt your baby. That law, This has long been uh, uh, a um, an argument by anti-abortion activists that adoption is a solution for compelled births. Uh, and the the, Alito says in the opinion that anyone who gives up their baby for adoption can rest assured that the baby will find a suitable home. So it's all based, though, on the same myth that there is a free market for babies and it's a win-win situation. I think it's it's very likely that forcing people to give birth to children that they weren't economically prepared to take care of is going to increase the removal of those children. So it's not that people are going to voluntarily give up their children. In fact, we know from the takeaway study that most people who are forced to give birth, who wanted to get an abortion, keep their babies. What's more likely to happen is that they will be forced to give up their children or their children will be taken from them because of the increased uh, economic hardship they'll face because they were forced to give birth to a baby they weren't economically prepared to take care of. And so there's another, you know, that's another connection. Dorothy, with yes. your reference to a free market for babies, you fully brought this episode around to the main topic of taboo trades that we are, that is our core theme. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm glad that on your last episode, we could tie it together. Tie the whole thing together. <laughs> um, so um, I have to, you know, I'll be honest. I, uh, I have been thinking a lot more about 
the question of whether abortion, abortion, whether adoption should be abolished. And I have I have not taken that position. Um, I'm not sure yet if it's a position that flows uh, logically from my position on family policing. I, it, it it very well might. Um, and I, I have very clearly, I've written um, that adoption, the adoption industry is one that it, that takes babies and children from less privileged people and gives them to more privileged people. It is clearly um, governed by hierarchies of power, which are uh, oppressive. And um, and so the way it operates now, I think, should be abolished and replaced. Now, does that mean that adoption should never take place? Um, you know, I, I, to be honest, I wish I didn't have to answer the question, but, <laughs> but I but I want to be I want to be forthright about it. I have come closer to that decision because. There is a growing movement of adoptees, people who have been adopted, who are calling for the abolition of adoption. And they are saying, our voices haven't been heard. Uh, we have been forced, we've been taken from our families, almost always under coercive conditions, whether it's the state taking it or because of economic insecurity or uh, other kinds of political inequities that force people to give up their children um, or have their children taken from them. And so the conditions of adoption are always unjust conditions. I think next we can move into um, a couple more questions about the practicality of uh, sure. abolition and the specifics sure. of what that entails. I think Julia um, had a question for us. Mm -hmm. Um, hi again. I have Hello. a question about the proposed ban in your paper on involuntary drug testing of pregnant parents and newborns. Um, mm -hmm. I was really alarmed to read how incredibly biased the family policing system is at every step of the decision-making process. You give an example in the article of Black parents being screened and reported for drug use during pregnancy, while white parents are less likely to be screened or reported for a positive result. It's really unfair, and I completely agree that parents shouldn't be treated differently for the same behaviors. But with a procedure like prenatal or newborn drug testing, my intuition is that the problem isn't with the procedure itself, but with the fact that it's being used in a really discriminatory way. Um, I worked with children in the past and have cared for newborns with prenatal substance exposure, and I feel that testing newborns for drug exposure can be important in some circumstances. So I guess my question is, when creating non-reformist reforms, how do you decide which procedures need to be scrapped entirely and which just need clearer guidance on how to avoid discriminatory enforcement? Yeah, yeah, thanks for that question. So I think certainly we don't want to enforce a procedure in a discriminatory fashion. And as you pointed out, and as it has been long, well-documented and continues to be documented in multiple studies, Black newborns and uh, pregnant people are much more likely to be tested and reported 
than their white counterparts, especially if they're wealthy. So, okay, that's a given. But then I think we have to ask, well, why is that? Does that tell us something about the practice itself and the need for the practice? Because right now it is very unlikely that a wealthy white person is going to be forcibly tested and reported. So if it's, so why is that? There must be something bad about it. Why, you know, if, if there's, if this is how, what I think about family policing in general, if it's focused on the most disadvantaged, marginalized people and the most privileged people are exempt, it's probably because it's not good to experience it. Otherwise, we would have the most wealthy and privileged people experience it and not the most disadvantaged. So, you know, that was the first clue to me that this was a racist system when I went to Chicago and saw that all the families being separated were Black families. Well, of course, that's not a good system then. It must be a bad system. Otherwise, I'd see all white families in there and wealthy white families in there. It was so wonderful. So why is it that doctors are able to care for wealthy white patients without forcing drug testing on them and without reporting them to Child Protective Services? Now, I don't know. I'm not a doctor. I'm not, you know, you may know more about this because you worked in that field than I do, but my intuition is that they figured out ways of caring for their wealthy white patients that don't require coercive practices and punishing their families. And so my first instinct would be, well, let's see how they do it for the most privileged people. How do, how do they care for those infants? Because believe me, it is not true that only impoverished Black people use drugs while they're pregnant. I mean, studies have also shown that it cuts across socioeconomic and racial lines. And we know that it occurs. So um, I mean, not to mention alcohol, a different problem, but one that's still. Well, but but alcohol can be even more damaging. Yeah, right. The use of, of drugs, depending on how I mean, there there are mothers. Well, just recently in New York City, uh the Bronx Defenders and Arnold and Porter represented a Black mother who had her baby and children taken from her because of a positive uh, a test of the newborn that uh, the newborn tested positive for marijuana, for cannabis. And uh, New York happened to have recently passed a law legalizing it. And but they took her her children anyway, and they settle eventually because Bronx Defenders and Arnold Porter got involved. They settled for $75,000, I think, and and gave her her children back. What's 75 grand to have your children taken away, Dorothy? I know. (laughs) You know, it doesn't, there's no way it repaired the damage. Hopefully they'll stop doing it though, as a result of this, who knows? But of course there are wealthy white women in New York, who smoke marijuana while they're pregnant, who drink alcohol. We we know this, who use other kinds of drugs. And doctors have figured out how to care for them. The other thing I would say is if the harm is greater than the benefit, 
then we have to figure out better ways. So we know also that there is a harm in coercive drug testing of pregnant patients and newborns, uh, which is it deters people from getting prenatal care. And so not to mention the harm of taking the newborn away from their mother, uh, which may very well cause more harm than whatever uh, the harm of the drug use is. And, and as you know, it depends on how much drugs were used, what the drugs were, you know, a positive toxicology. It could be somebody smoked marijuana during pregnancy. I think next up we have uh, Joseph with a question. Hi, Dorothy. Thank you for joining us. Sure. In Why Abolition, you state that 16% of children enter foster care because they were physically or sexually abused. So in a post-abolition society where community support is the only available solution, what happens then to these children in situations where members of their own community or family have failed and harmed them? Is the removal of a child from their community or situation ever an appropriate response in your opinion? Yeah. Yeah. So first I would say if we reimagined caring for children, providing for their needs, supporting families, there would also be far less physical and sexual abuse of children. Um, especially physical abuse, we know is often tied to the stress of poverty. And that's not to say that poverty causes people to abuse their children, but uh, studies have shown this. And it's also just logical to uh, conclude that if somebody is under extreme economic stress, they are more likely to, um, you know, to freak out <laughs> when the children, it, when, in disciplining their children. Um, so uh, if we met the economic needs of children and families, there would be less physical abuse. Um, also, it would be it would be easier for people in abusive homes to leave those homes. Right now, for example, when a mother is, and it's usually a mother who is herself experiencing physical abuse, uh, and the child may be as well, uh, or if the, even if the child isn't, she is at risk of having her children taken from her because she herself is a victim of violence. And so uh, that deters mothers who are experiencing intimate partner violence from getting help. And also if they get involved in CPS, that puts all sorts of impediments to them becoming economically secure and able to get out of a violent situation. So in a, multiple ways, the system we have now puts children at risk of experiencing violence. Um, and so, again, doesn't mean that there won't be uh, cases where uh, there needs some to be some kind of intervention, but those cases will be radically reduced in uh, under an abolitionist vision of caring for families. Um, you know, it, I'm not sure what 
this world will look like, what the society will look like as we incrementally move toward dismantling this system and creating a community-based ways of addressing families' needs. But I believe that there will be ways, and this these are practices that transformative justice uh, experts and advocates are working on to hold people accountable for violence, um, separate people who are experiencing violence from perpetrators of violence, and getting to the root causes of violence. So, uh, the, you know, this abolition doesn't mean ignoring violence in homes. It means creating more effective ways of intervening, of reconciling, of, you know, keeping people safe. Uh, and that's, we have to work on on doing that. I think we'll move on to the next question, which we have from okay. Amina. Yeah. Hi. So I think you kind of touched on this previously and in the last question, but, you know, obviously abolition isn't this 100% take down everything overnight. Um, yeah. And so you mentioned the reform bills that were in New York in your article, but yeah. aside from those kind of New York reform bills, what are some other examples of meaningful reforms that we can enact to reduce harm in the short term? Yeah. Well, um, I should say that Texas has enacted some reforms that are similar to what's being uh, proposed in New York, which the New York uh, state legislature hasn't passed and the Administration for Children's Services opposes, like providing Miranda warnings, you know, telling parents what their rights are um, and um uh, let's see, I, I believe also moving from anonymous reporting to confidential reporting um, and these kinds of legal procedures that uh, give family caregivers more power to prevent the removal of their children. Um, another, which I think is really helpful, is the development of family defender units in legal aid or uh, legal services offices. So uh, multidisciplinary units within legal services that include attorneys who are trained and experienced at defending families from child uh, protection, investigation, and removal. But importantly, they also include social workers who can help to get the families the resources they need. This is the, the idea behind it is both protecting the rights of parents against the state, uh, but also providing the resources that families need so that the children don't have to be removed. Uh, and social workers play an important role there. And then also uh, they include peer advocates. So uh, uh, adults who have uh, been involved in the system either because their children were taken or uh, they experienced foster care themselves to give support and advice and encouragement uh, to the client. 
And I think that is really important, including, you know, funding for it so that it's it's always available to parents who have been accused of child maltreatment uh, in order to avoid their children being taken from them. And again, to uphold the rights that they have under the Constitution and federal law and sometimes state statutes that that, that aren't being um, enforced. Um, so that's one. And then uh, another is the proposal. I, I know Connecticut has proposed this, some other states as well, of having a different number that people can call if they need help or if they suspect that their children in need of help, that's not um, the child abuse hotline uh, where the goal would be to provide help to the family. Now, one concern I have is that if this different, you know, the supportive hotline, and some people are calling for instead of mandated reporters, mandated supporters, uh, you know, instead of, um, uh, the child abuse hotline, if we have this supportive hotline, is it connected, though, to the child welfare department? Because if it is, people will be deterred from calling it if they know that their call might be transferred to the coercive uh, family policing. Uh, and uh, often these departments, I've mentioned, they're big databases and their predictive analytics, you know, that they share a lot of information across uh, schools and hospitals and police departments to identify children at risk who can, you know, now be subject to investigation. And so if they're sharing, then uh, it might have the opposite effect, which is instead of shrinking uh, the numbers of families entangled in family policing, it expands it because now you have more people willing to call because they think that families are going to get help. And in fact, some portion of them are transferred to the child protection services, increasing the numbers of families who are under surveillance. Um, but if there could be a separate way of uh, providing resources to families, um, you know, disconnected from the coercive system, then I think that that's something to be uh, explored and um, and expanded on. Uh, and then there's, you know, I, I think also just any policies that increase affordable housing, you know, that um, make it easier for people to get on Medicaid and to uh, get food stamps and other kinds of resources, uh, expanding childcare, affordable or free childcare. I mean, a, a universal healthcare and childcare. We all really enjoyed your piece on race-based medicine, and we have several questions for you about it. Um, and our first question is from Dennis. Yeah, thank you again so much for for being here. Just echoing what everyone else said, it's a, it's been a real pleasure um, listening to your thoughts. Okay. Um, we uh, read your article about race based medicine. I found it particularly interesting um, because uh, in 
my last life as a journalist, I'd done a good bit of reporting on health inequities in uh, predominantly black communities, uh, mostly in Louisville, Kentucky. And so uh-huh. I'm curious um, why you believe race-based medical practices still exist. <laughs> um, I understand when you have like issues with, you know, like redlining um, and uh, you know, discriminatory practices that have shaped, you know, impacted access to healthcare. That's one thing, but this mm-hmm. is, you know, discriminatory um, practices inside healthcare. And since there's so much scholarship and literature about why this isn't true, yeah. um, and science is supposed to be a very, um, you know, fact, logic based, um, you know, field, yeah. how is it that we're still, <laughs> you know, dealing with these things? Yeah. You would think that uh, after 500 years of this ideology of the biological concept of race and the clear connection between it and slavery and settler colonialism and the promotion of it uh, as a way of justifying slavery in the United States and all the science from uh, the Human Genome Project and uh, human evolutionary history and all of that, right? and just plain common sense <laughs> that uh, we would no longer have race-based medicine in America. In fact, it would be clear that to advance medicine, we'd have to do away with those backward ways of thinking. Um, and it yeah, it is astounding that we continue to have these algorithms that automatically adjust uh, diagnoses and measurements by race automatically, you know, embedded in the technology. And so I think that part of it is that, you know, precisely because it's a way of thinking that did exist for 500 years, you know, that, and was so essential to, to to just to to science in Europe and America so essential to the institution of slavery to Jim Crow you know to institutions that were so deeply embedded in the United States and globally and it existed for most of US history you know that if you think about it the idea that race is not an innate characteristic, that it is a social construction, I like to say a political invention. I mean, that idea only took hold in the you know, after World War II, really, and and didn't even and and I, I shouldn't even say took hold. It what it, it was it it became accepted science only after World War II. And really, it wasn't until after the civil rights movement. And even, you know, in in a way, even with the Human Genome Project. uh, But anyway, even then, though, researchers we're looking to see whether you could identify race at the genetic level. And Clinton and um, uh, uh, Craig Venter and um, uh, all the, you know, the scientists and uh, politicians who were 
declaring this was such an amazing expedition into the human genome and all of that, they all also declared it shows that race is not real at the genetic level, but as if they had to dispel that common idea. So even into the 21st century, it still was considered this amazing discovery (laughs) that human beings weren't naturally divided into races. So when you have an idea that is so deeply embedded in culture, you know, popular culture, I think most people in America think race is a natural division of human beings. And doctors are part of our culture. They're influenced by our culture as well. Yeah, I think that leads in well to um, Liam's question he had about the uh, the physical differences between um, ethnicities. Mm-hmm. All right. So my question was, when discussing race-based medicine and the cause of, causes of group-based differences, while underlying group differences in health may be partly rooted in systemic racism and racism in general, there are nonetheless very real differences. Uh, for example, there are a number of differences. For example, sickle cell is primarily found in people from regions that have malaria in Latin America and sub-Saharan Africa. Diabetes risk is radically different based on, for example, um, diabetes risk for certain ethnicities, particularly South Asian people, Black people, certain Pacific Islanders. At lower weights, they're far more prone to diabetes than white people are. And there are a number of other lists we could rattle down that do actually differ between races. While the lines might not be like concentric circles that are separate from each other and the lines between races are fuzzy, there are nonetheless very real health outcome differences. Is it ever okay to take race, ethnicity, or this into account when diagnosing and or treating patients? Well, first I would say we have to make a distinction between race and ethnicity. So ethnicity is uh, a much smaller grouping of people. Uh, It usually involves ancestry and culture. Um, And uh, it's just a... It's so much smaller than race. Race is a huge category of people that includes lots of different ethnicities. And you there's no way to determine what race someone belongs to without looking at cultural, social, and political definitions. So uh, even, even how you described the differences in Uh, the prevalence of certain diseases, you described it according to ethnicities. Uh, It's just not true, for example, that Black people, you know, as a so-called race, are predisposed innately or genetically to sickle cell disease. It's, you know, it's, as you pointed out, it's, it's geographically based which relates to the prevalence of malaria in certain geographic regions. But people from Southern Africa uh, don't have a higher rate of sickle cell disease than people from, I mean, whose ancestors are from, than people from Southern Europe. So it, you know, to say that it is a disease that is related at all to Black race is just too imprecise. It's it's not um, it's not helpful because who belongs to the black race is a completely political decision that has changed over time. It means something different in different nations. Uh, 
many Black people have more white or European ancestry than African ancestry. And so what to say, you know, with diagnosing them, would you, we routinely would just diagnose them if we're going to take race into account as Black when their ancestry could be more European. Dorothy, on the note of ancestry, um, that actually transitions us so perfectly into Jenna's question, which is about Ancestry.com and 23andMe and Mm -hmm. commercial DNA testing. Um, So Jenna, if you'd like to go ahead. Hi, thank you so much for joining us. I'm just curious if you have any thoughts about the commercial DNA um, testing services like Ancestry or 23andMe. Does testing DNA and giving somebody like an exact breakdown of their ethnicities and geographic origin uh, like reinforce within society that idea that there are firm genetic distinctions between races? Yeah. Well, again, uh, we have to be careful, as I was saying in answer to Liam's question, uh, to not conflate race, ethnicity, and ancestry. Each one means something different. Again, race is a political category that may have nothing to do with your ancestry. It it just depends on what group you, uh, according to the political and social rules at the time in the place you're asking about it, uh, you belong to. Um, you know, whether you're white, it, there was a time when Mexicans were determined to be white because of a treaty. Uh, and we routinely say that Black people uh, belong to the Black race, even though, as I said, they may have more ancestry that's out of Africa rather than African ancestry. So, um, so, so I would distinguish between ancestry testing companies that claim to be able to tell you your race, which they used to do. I think they've stopped doing as much as they used to, uh, or what percentage of different races you are versus those that try to tell you what um, ethnicity, what what the different ethnicities that um, in your ancestry. But I do believe that these companies do reinforce the view that race is biological when people confuse ethnicity, ancestry, and race. So if, if if consumers are confusing those, I think that then when they get the results, it reinforces their view that race is biological. Um, and it also reinforces the view that we can determine our ancestry definitively through genetic testing, which also isn't true. In fact, if you've gotten results from one of these tech companies, you probably have gotten updated results that are different from the past results because your DNA doesn't have labels on it to tell you what your ancestry is. It has to be determined by the company, which is based on what databases they're using and their algorithms for how they determine whether your genes are similar enough to groups in their database to say you share a common ancestry with those people in the database. But can I... 
if there's time, I, you know, both in answer to both your questions and Liam's as well, and maybe in general about race-based medicine, race is a real category. It is a real category that people are placed in and that does affect their health, but not because it is an innate natural division of human beings. It's because your race determines the privileges that you'll have in a society, the conditions you'll live under, your experience of uh, both racism, uh, but also your experience of conditions that affect your health. You know, if you live in a an impoverished, segregated black neighborhood, you're more likely to experience police violence, either yourself or other people in your community. You're more likely to be incarcerated. You're more likely to experience employment discrimination. You're more likely to uh, be exposed to toxins. So the mo- the main reason why we see health differences according to race is because of those differences in living conditions that are determined by structural racism. And uh, again, to the extent that it has anything to do with ancestry, then we should be looking at ancestry, not race. (laughs) It's, It's ancestry that may make a difference. But when it comes to race, logically, just logically speaking, we know this is a a, a political category. And again, the the most obvious way to see that is that somebody who has one Black grandparent and three white grandparents is going to be determined to be Black. So if it has anything to do with ancestry, why, why would you look at race when they have more European ancestry? And if it is, that they fall into a category of poorer health, it's probably because they were they experienced some of these conditions of structural racism because they've been identified as black. You know, Thank you so much for that, Dorothy. I, I love your energy. <laughs> <laughs> so great. Um, I think for our last question, um, yes. we're going to uh, go with uh, one that uh, I think fans of the podcast will... Um, see as a continuing saga of the uh, the Danville COVID trips. I, I know you might not know about this, Dorothy, but um, we've had a lot of similar questions. Um, so, Kate, why don't you take it away? Absolutely. And I will say I am honored to be what is apparently the last question of this. <laughs> um, so this fits in really well with what you're talking about, health outcomes being determinative of where people are living and the access they're able to get. So I attended UVA for undergrad as well. Um, for background. And I'm this question came up because of your article's discussion of uh, the history of America experimenting on Black people without their consent yeah. uh, in the name of medical innovation. Yeah. So when I was here in undergrad, COVID vaccines became available to the general public in the town of Danville, which is about an hour and a half away from Charlottesville, long before they became generally available in Charlottesville. Mm-hmm. Uh, Danville's population is about 49% Black, much higher than the average in Virginia. Mm-hmm. Um, and many, mostly white UVA students, tr- just though some not white UVA students, chose to drive to Danville to get their shots there, uh, facing criticism for taking the vaccine opportunity away from the Black residents the program was aimed at. 
Um, many responded to the criticism by saying vaccines were going bad in Danville, in part due to Black people's justified distrust of government health initiatives due to this history that you had talked about. From what you'd seen, does this level of distrust actually exist in Black communities, or are people solely using this as an excuse to avoid targeted <laughs> interventions that would assist these populations? Yeah, yeah. I think I think there is a level of distrust of government um, provided experiment, you know, what might be perceived as experimental in the sense that it hasn't been widely tested or used, um, uh, drugs and technologies. Um, and, you know, and again, justifiable given the long history of uh, using Black people and their bodies for medical experimentation, but, and also distrust of government programs that dispense you know, these uh, uh, technologies and, and drugs as the, you know, the, the syphilis experiment was a U.S. government funded experiment on Black people. Uh, but I believe that it does it it does get exaggerated and misinterpreted. So often there's this idea that black people are um, uh, you know afraid of science or they're unscientific um, or uh, black people don't uh, you know are non-compliant when it comes to healthcare regimens. Um, and I think that is uh, is just a, a stereotype. Uh, there's, you know, there, there's so much research that could be done on this to get at the bottom of what is perceived as Black people's wariness about medicine and science. Uh, I once wrote an article about uh, this, this stereotype and pointed out that Black people, in some studies, I don't know if this is no is is still true but in some ways it's shown that black people are the most likely to ask for high tech life saving treatment for their relatives <laughs> you know that uh when doctors say oh no you, we we're going to shut off the life saving treatment white people are more likely to comply than black people black people are more likely to say no uh, we want more technology to keep grandma alive um, and which may also be part of the distrust of why they want to take grandma off of life-sustaining treatment. I'll also point out that uh, now there have been recent studies showing that white people are more likely to avoid vaccines and other kinds of protections against COVID for political reasons. They are more likely to believe that the whole uh, fear about COVID is a hoax, um, more likely to, uh, to think that government promotion of vaccines is too much government interference. And this is one explanation that's been given for why the gap in uh, death rates from COVID has gotten smaller since uh, uh, 2020. Uh, not you know largely because white people have not been following uh, protective measures and getting vaccinated at the rates that black people have. So and some this is very political. It 
tends to be Republicans. And um, again, I, I, I'm I'm citing research I've read. I haven't studied it extensively, but I think it's I, I think that the political debate around vaccines would bear out that it's been white Republicans who have been calling for a halt to government um, vac- promotion of vaccines now, you know, much more than Black people are. So uh, I, I think that um, that it is the, that the idea that Black people are afraid of medicine or don't believe science is definitely misinterpreted and exaggerated. Um, and uh, we have to look carefully at what are the political uh, the political influences that shape people's views about medicine. And medicine and science need to be more trustworthy. I really don't like the idea that we have to get Black people to trust, you know, science and medicine more. I think it should be that medicine and science need to be more trustworthy and uh, in order to uh, warrant the trust of Black Americans and others as well. Uh, if I could say one more thing about University of Virginia that you did not mention, which is the study that I'm pretty sure I cite in that article of uh, lay people, medical students and residents uh, where a substantial number of white medical students and residents believed false uh, myths about Black biological difference. I did uh, not realize that was at UVA. It was at UVA. Yeah, you did cite it, but I just did not. I know. It, it, yeah. it was at UVA, uh, believing things like Black people have thicker skin than white people, Black people have less sensitive nerve endings than white people, and the researchers found an association between belief in those myths and their uh, uh, inadequate um, prescriptions for pain for Black patients. And so uh, going back to the question about why does race-based medicine still exist? You know, we have a recent study that was 2016 finding that residents who are treating patients Whole a substantial number in this study hold these false beliefs. And as I was saying, it is going to take a lot of work to upend these ideas that are so deeply embedded in racial concepts of disease and the biological concept of race. Great. Well, I that was our final question and our final episode for the season. So thank you so much for doing this, Dorothy. It was great sure. to see you again. And it was sure. great to get a chance to talk to you about um, your work on this. As I told the students earlier, I feel like in some ways the world is finally catching up to you. I know it doesn't <laughs> feel that way to you probably, but you know, you've been, you know, you've been making some of these arguments for decades now. Yeah. And some of them at least. I feel like are becoming a little more mainstream and, you know, yeah. you were ahead of your time to your credit. So <laughs> oh, thank you. Thanks, Kim. It's good to connect with you again. And thanks for all your great questions. Great questions. Great questions. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much, Dorothy.